0: This morning we're finishing our series, Firm Foundations, where we've been looking at the whole subject of discipleship together as a church. And I've been asked to speak on discipleship in terms of the environment of heaven. So bringing the environment of heaven into our everyday lives and our lives together as a church. And so as I've been wrestling with this and chewing over the subject, it occurred to me that actually it's very hard for us to look at the environment of heaven without, first of all, really understanding what's the environment of the world that we live in like. Because um, Paul says in Romans, he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Well, it stands to reason, therefore, that we need to have an understanding of what's the pattern of this world that we're not to be conformed to. And so what I want to do this morning is very simply, I want to look at three words that just to some extent give a flavour of the world that we live in, and then three words that give a, a flavour of the environment of heaven that we're to create around us. Does that sound all right? So that's what we're going to do? I'm going to very briefly pray for us. Is that all right? So, um, so, Father, we thank you that we get to be together like this. Thank you, Father, for your presence here with us right now. I pray for each one of us that it would be our heart's desire to hear from the the living God here this morning. Whether we feel really close to you or whether we feel a million miles away, I pray would you come and speak to each heart here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so firstly, three words that would, to some extent, describe the kind of environment that we live in in Western British society. All right. So the first word is this, consumerism, consumerism. Uh, This is the idea that we're not just people, but that we are consumers of products and services. Uh, That that others are there to provide things for us, which is fine, so long as our increasingly demanding expectations are met. If not, then things go a little bit pear-shaped and we start to protest and complain. Uh, Thomas Cook, the travel agent, keeps track of some of the complaints that its customers send in after their holidays abroad. One customer reported this. She complained, there were fish in the sea. No one warned us that there might be fish in the sea. My children were startled. Another person, returning from holiday in Spain, actually wrote these words. There were too many Spanish people there. The receptionist spoke Spanish. The food was Spanish, who knew? No one told us that there would be so many foreigners. I just, oh inwardly, I'm cringy, if you're from overseas, I can only (laughs) apologise. And then my favourite one, someone returning from holiday in the Caribbean complained. They wrote this, it took us nine hours to fly home from Jamaica to England, it took the Americans only three hours to get home. (laughs) This seems unfair. So they are writing to Thomas Cook to complain about the location of Jamaica. They just, it, it, it defies belief. You begin to see the problem, don't you? Closely linked to this, consumerism is a second word. Uh, it's another Western value, and it's that of entitlement. Uh, this is the idea that we have certain rights that must, must not be violated. Again, fine, so long as you don't take it to extremes. The problem comes when we start to believe that the world owes us something just because we're here. Uh, I read a report this week in the news um, about a thief who had called the police when a shopkeeper banned him from his shop after catching him shoplifting for the third time. And he claimed to the police officer that his human rights had been violated (laughs) by being banned from the shop. Children now are being brought up very often in an environment where their entitlement, they believe, is a real right of theirs. That amusement is a basic human right, that they have the right to be entertained. Parents who have been looking after children over half-term can probably identify with that. So that's the second word to describe our society. The third word I would use is this, convenience. Young people are growing up with the expectation that life will come easily to them that everything from fast food to fast broadband will be available on demand. Try taking a teenager on holiday without Wi-Fi and you'll understand what I mean, that life should be easy and convenient. And much of that is down to the, the parenting that we are doing as parents. It's this idea that fast is good and everything will come to me when I need it. Domino's pizzas, for instance, uh, they've s- built their business not necessarily on the quality of the pizzas, but on the speed at which they will deliver it to you. They'll get it to you th- in under 30 minutes or less. It might taste like an old tyre, but it will be with you quickly. <laughs> Just say, if Domino's do want to sue, my email address is simon.holly at King's Arms, so <laughs> feel free to write in. So you can see how us, this shapes our society, and all of us are immersed in this kind of world. And the trouble is with convenience is that if you buy into that, then you start believing that if something isn't convenient, therefore it must be bad or wrong. So shops and businesses now are trying to manage people's expectations of what kind of service they can expect. I came across this sign that was displayed outside a shoe repair shop. It says this, we can do three things. We can do fast, good, and cheap. You can have any two of the three. (laughs) Good and cheap won't be fast. Fast and good won't be cheap. Cheap and fast won't be good. I thought that's brilliant, isn't it? It Says it how it really is. But something about that sometimes grates with us. We start to have little or no patience for the things that take effort or investment. After all, what's the point of doing something if you can't see an instant benefit? And the risk is that we apply all of these cultural values into our relationships. So we want our relationships in life to be like our microwave meals, that they're quick, simple and easy for us. We start to see comfort not as a luxury, but as a right and of course we kid ourselves if we think that we're not affected in the church by these things. One of the biggest dangers of consumerism is that we can see the church as the provider of religious goods and services to me. We ask ourselves questions like, what are the children's facilities like? Do they sing the kind of songs that I like? How good was the preach? Did it keep me entertained? Don't answer that question. We ask things like, how did the worship make me feel, rather than, how well did I worship this morning? We question, what am I getting out of this experience, rather than, what am I contributing into this church? Now, many of those things are very valid, don't get me wrong. But the point is, if our only aim is that we would receive something, then we're missing out. God has more for you than that. It's your rights, your privilege to participate, not just spectate in this church. If you only ever consume a King's Arms, you come along, sing through the worship, listen to a talk eat a cake and have a coffee and go home and that's all you ever do, then you are missing out. And what will happen is that church will start to feel hollow and empty. Only those who contribute have an investment in what's going on, both contribute in terms of their finances but their time as well. Then once you're invested, you've got the opportunity to receive so much more on that investment. You start to feel part of something and it starts to have a value in your life. So if that's a little snapshot of our world and some of the things that are going on, it begs the question, well, in this cultural climate, in our society, what's the church meant to be like? How should we be different? What should Christians be like? Well, if those are the three words that might sum up our society to some extent, let me give you three words that I think can, t- can contribute to us having a biblical environment together as a church. Let me just read a little bit of scripture for you. 2 Timothy 2 says this, you then, my child, Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you've heard from me in the presence of so many witnesses in trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who has enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. In just these few short verses, Paul is giving instructions to Timothy on how to live out heaven's values now. If you like, it's the context for discipleship. There's loads in here, but just for the sake of time, let me just pull out these three characteristics. The first one is this. Discipleship is an expression of family. Discipleship is an expression of family. The, The passage starts out with this phrase, you then, my child, be strengthened. My child, it's just one short little phrase, but it belies a massive three theme throughout the New Testament. The New Testament is literally chock full of references to the church being like an extended family. Let me just machine gun some at you for a moment. Romans 12 says this, Love one another with brotherly affection. Uh, 1 Timothy he's talking about rebuking people, and he says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers... Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. 1 Thessalonians, he talks about Paul being a father with his children. Ephesians, 1 Timothy and 1 Peter all talk about us being the household of God. If you like, the family of God together. And a personal favourite, I love this, in Romans 16, uh, verse 13, he says this, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. I don't know what that meant, but maybe she did his washing and cooked for him. I don't know. But there was some sort, of, there's some sort of bond there, some sort of connection between them. I did a scan through the New Testament this week. I came across 198 references to us being family together. I would say it's a, perhaps the most predominant theme of describing the church in the New Testament, family. You know, we have this phrase as elders when we're discussing issues and uh, it's this, the, the metaphor of whether or not you would die in a ditch over this issue And as we bash things around and discuss things and uh, so it's become a, a measure for how much time do we need to devote to discussing to an, an issue. So if I'm a mile away from the ditch, it's not a big deal and we can move on. If however I have one foot in the ditch on this issue, we need to really talk about it. I would say for us as a team, the fact that the King's Arms should be a family is a die in a ditch issue is make or break. It's vital, it's essential for us as a church. This is not a company. This is not an agency. It's not a faculty or an institution. It's not a joint venture or a crowd-funded micro-enterprise. It's not a corporation. It's not an organisation. It's a family. That's how we're meant to be with one another. Family. Now, I know that's not everybody's experience. I know that many of us, we feel like it's not quite family to me. I guess my point is, let's make it everyone's experience. Don't start by asking, who's being family to me? That's the wrong question. Instead, ask, who am I being family to? Because God will draw people across your path that you are meant to be family towards. Over the years, Emma and I have had a lot of people stay in our home for varying lengths of time. And we had one young woman come and stay with us. And uh, just for a short while, I'll call her Sarah. And uh, she'd been raised in a really strict home where whatever she'd done, even the most minor misdemeanour, was severely punished. And uh, one day she came to Emma and I and she said, look, I need to speak uh, to both of you alone uh, for a while. And she was clearly, visibly, very distressed. Her her face had lost much of its colour. And she, she sat down and her hands were trembling as she spoke. And we waited for a couple of minutes, just giving her space to speak. And finally she said, look, I'm really sorry. I don't know how this could have happened, but I've managed somehow to lose the house key you gave me. So Emma and I at that point sat back and breathed a massive sigh of relief. We thought, you know, she's got cancer or some serious illness or something like that. We're like, oh, it's the door key. But for her, it was a massive, massive issue. She had let us down, and therefore there should be severe consequences. And I just felt the presence of God on me. I just felt I should ask her a question. It's often a good way of discipling people is asking a question. And I I said to Sarah, is it okay for you to make a mistake? And she just went silent as she wrestled with this in her mind. Intellectually, she knew it's okay for me to lose the house key. But internally, it was a different story. In the end, I just gently put my hand on her shoulder, shoulder and I said to her, Sarah, In this household, it's okay to make mistakes. And she just broke down, just wept with us there. You know, I believe that God had Sarah stay with us just for that brief period of time so that we could be fatherly and motherly towards her. Now, I'm not her father. God's her father. But God gave me the opportunity to represent something of his father's heart to her in that moment. Why? Why? because we're family. I wasn't her mentor, you know, I, I, I wasn't her supervisor, but I got to be fatherly towards her in that moment. Jesus says in John 17, in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, I haven't lost any of those that you have entrusted to me. I guess I wanna ask you, who has God entrusted to you? Who has he put across your path that you're to look out for, that you're to be a brother or a sister to? Here's the thing, I reckon for many of us, if I asked you to disciple somebody in church, I said, look, will you disciple this person? For many of you, you might be slightly daunted at the prospect, either because you think to yourself, I just don't have the physical time to do that, or secondly, you think, well, I don't know that I'm spiritually in a place myself to help anybody. But if instead of saying to you, would you disciple somebody, I came up to you and I said, look, here's John, He's recently lost his job. He could do with somebody who will be fatherly towards him right now. Somehow, intuitively, you'd know what that means. You'd have him round your house, you'd pray for him, maybe choose a memory verse to study together, and heap encouragement on this guy to help pick him up off the floor. Or if I said to you, here's Anya, she's just become a Christian. She's desperate to know God more, but her family are really angry that she's made the choice to follow Christ, and they want to ostracize her. Here's the discipleship booklet. What she needs right now is a kindly auntie who will draw alongside her. You'd instinctively know that that means chats around your kitchen table, nice coffee, and that chocolate must feature somewhere. You'd know that. It's just, just intuitive. Or I said to you, here's Gavin. His job has become all-consuming, and he doesn't know how he can manage family life and the pressures of work all at the same time. What he needs is a brother to stand with him, to believe in him, to pray for him, and advise him in this season of life. Instinctively, you know what to do. Listen, the point is, there are Johns and Anyas and Gavins all over the place. I'm asking, will you be brothers and sisters and aunties and mothers and fathers and uncles to them? I'm not asking you to have a meeting. You know, Lord, preserve us from another meeting. Please don't do that. I'm asking, will you be family towards them? Who is God entrusting you to? I'm not asking you to do more. Instead, I'm asking you to do what you normally do and then have other people with you. Take them to the supermarket with, with, market with you. Go eat meals with them. Work on the garden together. Clear out the drains together. I don't mind. Just do life with them a little bit. I remember I used to be discipled by a chap who used to lead the king's arms here. And um, we spent a lot of time together. Uh, Emma and I would often be around his house. And uh, we would uh, babysit for them and help them with bits and pieces of DIY, that kind of thing. Anyway, he felt called cool to uh, go plant a church um, up north. And uh, Emma and I went round and... Um, help them with the last bits of packing on the actual moving day. And it was all the stuff was in the removal van, but they had bits of crockery and valuable stuff to pack up. So we went and, and helped with that. Anyway, whilst we're there, the house has all been cleared out. Whilst we're there, a phone call comes through from the solicitor. And the phone calls to say that there's been a problem with the chain and the house sale. The house that they're currently stood in has sold fine, but the house they're hoping to buy, there's been a problem, and they don't know if the sale is going to go through. So here he is, suddenly, we don't own a home any longer. And I watched as this man receives the call calmly and then gathers his family together and explains it to them. Explained it in simple terms so the children could understand it. And then we all stood round in this empty house, echoey room, and prayed together. And he, this, this father, reminded us of the promises that they'd received from God about going church planting up north. And we stood on those promises and prayed. And then they decided to just go ahead. So they pack their belongings in the car, and load up the children and everything, and they head up the M1. And all they have got is a removal van full of stuff and the promises of God. Sure enough, part way up the motorway, the phone call comes through from the solic- solicitor and miraculously, the problem is resolved. And they're able to drive straight in, keys to their new house, incredible. I tell you, I learned more about living a life of faith in that one morning with that guy than I ever did from all the sermons I ever heard him preach. Because we got to do family together. I saw life in all its glory. If you want to develop other people, I'd say live a faith-filled life and then invite other people to share it with you. An authentic life trumps an articulate presentation any day of the week. It was Ralph Emerson who first said, who you are, shout so loudly, I can't hear what you say. Live a real life and be family with those around you. That's the first thing. For the sake of time, let me speed us on through to the second thing, Second biblical concept, I believe, that talks about the environment of heaven. The second thing is this. Paul encourages Timothy to live a lifestyle of sacrifice. He's saying, very rarely does anything of value come without cost. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. In other words, Paul's calling Timothy to live a deliberate life. In a society that values convenience, Paul's saying, live a life of inconvenience. Because the reality is, discipling, inputting other people won't always be easy and convenient for you. It requires an openness and an authenticity that doesn't always come naturally to us as British people. I remember hearing about a New Frontiers pastor, a guy called Ray Lowe, who's um, been around since year dot and is something of a legend in New Frontiers circles. And uh, he was uh, discipling a young guy in his church, helping him to mature and grow in Jesus. And uh, very often this guy would come around Ray's house and they'd hang out together. Anyway, one day, um, Ray's in the kitchen with his wife uh, and they're having a row. They're arguing about something that had come up. And the doorbell goes. And it's this young guy at the door that he's been discipling. And rather than saying to this young guy, tell you what, this isn't a good time. Do you want to come back later? He says to this young guy, oh, my wife and I are in the middle of having a row. Tell you what, why don't you come on in and see how we get on with it? (laughs) So this young man is then wheeled into the kitchen. I don't know who I feel more sorry for, if it's the young man or the wife, I don't know. And so he stands there, feeling like, oh, you know, toe-curlingly embarrassing, as Ray and his wife continue having this argument to resolve things. I tell you, I'm not quite ready for that level of authenticity in my life. I don't know about you. I guess the thing is, though, you can look at that and think, oh that's a bit of an odd thing to do. But you see, Ray was determined that this guy didn't just get to see the sanitised version of his life. He didn't just get to see the public facade, but he got to see life as it really is. And in Ray's mind, knowing how to resolve conflict is a very important life skill. You can see what he meant. In the same way, we can think that we need to have our lives all sorted out before anybody can learn from us. I'd say that's not so. I think how you handle adversity teaches people far more than how you handle success. People learn far more from you in the tough moments of life than they do in the easy times. The most teachable moments come when things go wrong. Sadly, my family have many personal illustrations about this. Let me give you one about my brother instead of me. Um, My brother um, uh, used to live in Australia for a number of years, and uh, he had a house, a lovely house they were renting, big, expensive place, and it was built on a hill, and it had this uh, driveway that um, went down towards the house. And one day, some, some friends of theirs, a younger couple who they were just sort of getting alongside and inputting and that kind of thing, they, they came to spend some time with them. And they've been touring around Australia, and they had rented this amazing, all the bells and whistles, camper van to tour around Australia. So they parked the camper van on the driveway. And, um, go in and spend some time with my, my brother and his wife. And then they say, oh, actually, would you want to pop out with the kids and have a look at our amazing camper van? I said, yeah, great. So they all go in, have a tour around the camper van, look in, come out, say, isn't it lovely, and all that sort of thing. And so it all goes fine. What they didn't realise is that they had left my brother's four-year-old son still inside the camper van. And so he heads towards the driver's seat. And um, somehow, we still don't know how he managed it, but somehow he managed to release the handbrake on this camper van very expensive camper van rolls down the hill and crashes into a very expensive rental house. The result was very expensive. And, and in that moment, I remember my brother saying, he dashes into the camper van and checks his son isn't injured, and oh, there's that sigh of relief. And as, as a parent, you'll know, the sigh of relief is quickly followed by other emotions in that moment. And my, it's like my time slowed down for me. He said he, said he realized in that moment, He had a choice. He was feeling um, fear because he didn't know how much it was going to cost to repair this camper van and this house. He was feeling embarrassment because he he was realising this other couple were watching as his son crashed into the building. But he realised in his mind he could either in that moment punish his son out of anger, fear and embarrassment or he could discipline his son out of love and realized a large portion of the blame rested with him for letting his son be in the camper van unattended anyway. Stuart realized that was a discipleship moment, both for his boy, but also for the couple who are watching. You see, when life goes wrong, it's a teachable moment for all those around you. The question is, how will you respond in that moment? I guess we need to realize that discipleship is not just about following a program. It's great to have tools like the discipleship booklet, but it's more about an approach, an attitude to life. Will you be willing to sacrifice a little bit of your personal space, a little bit of your personal time in order that others might benefit? Will you live a deliberate kind of life that Paul's calling Timothy to do? So that's the second thing, living a life of sacrifice. And the last and final word on this is legacy. Paul's calling Timothy to leave a legacy. He says this in verse 2, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He then goes on to talk about us being like farmers who, who want to reap a harvest from what we've sown. Paul's not just interested in impacting ones and twos. Paul's concern is to leave a legacy, to leave a deposit of the kingdom of God, with everybody that he comes across, both inside and outside the church. I worked for a number of years as a careers advisor, and I estimate I saw somewhere around three to 3,500 clients during my career there. And I remember I used to have 45 minutes with each person, and I wanted them in those 45 minutes to feel like they were the most important person in the world to me. I gave myself to them, I used to get home absolutely exhausted because I'd done my absolute best to listen to them, advise them as best I could, and to be emotionally present with them in the moment. I most likely will never know what difference I made, but I know for those four years working as a careers advisor, I sowed just little nuggets of the Kingdom of God into their lives. All of us have an impact. Phil mentioned in an earlier preach, 10,000 people across the course of your life is the minimum number of people you'll influence. The question is, what do you want that influence to look like? Do you want it to be for good? Or do you just want to replicate what the rest of the world around you is selling? And then once I finished my career as careers advisor, I worked for a number of years um, running a gap year training program for people who worked in local churches. And one of the things we used to do is we used to have men's and women's groups. Paul Kellett's down the front here we did a number of those with me. Um, I don't know what happened in the women's groups. Wendy used to do those. I do know that there was a lot of crying and hugging went on, but that's about as much as I know. Um, but I knew what happened in the men's groups uh, because many of the guys that attended those, those sessions, they had been to men's groups before and they were expecting the standard men's group talk, which is stop it. Stop it. Stop it now. Don't do that. Don't think about that. Don't look at that. Don't even go there. To have nothing to do with that and stop it. And they're expecting to be, have an hour and a half of being told off for what they've done or what they thought or what they may have thought of thinking about. But instead, what happened was we would sit and we'd have a lineup. And um, I would start by sharing my story. And I would share it to such a depth. That it meant that if they wanted to, they could take the information I had shared and use it against me. And I said to them, tonight I'm going to entrust you with personal information about my life that you could use to damage me and my family if you want to. And then I would share my story. And then we'd go down the line and in the end Paul Kellett would share his story. By the time we got to Paul, they were putty in our hands. And then we'd sim- all we'd simply do is we'd say, okay, so who wants to be prayed for? And literally, there would be a forest of hands. The last time we did it, I counted, we got 21 out of 22 guys raising their hands. And then the 22nd guy at the end, he comes up to me and says, I should have raised my hands. And what happens, they start to just open up about their lives. Why do we do that? Why do we share to a level that was uncomfortable for us? We did it because we wanted to leave a legacy. We did it because we wanted to make an impact. We wanted to change something. Wherever you go, you can leave a legacy. You can make a difference to the people's lives that you touch. Even just this week gone, I took the children out for breakfast as a treat. And um, the guy who served us, the waiter, was just absolutely brilliant. And so at the end, I put the kids in the car and I went back into the restaurant. And uh, I asked to speak to him. And I, I said to him, uh, look, just really appreciate the way you served us here this morning. Um, I just want you to know I, I'm a Christian. And uh, as Christians, we believe it's right to honour people." where they serve excellently. And I gave him a tip that was kind of 50% of the the total bill. Why do I do that? Because I want to make an impact in his life. I don't know where the fruit from that might be, but I'm sowing liberally wherever I can in order that either me or somebody else one day will reap a harvest. You know, remember at the start I showed you our house and how it all looks lovely and nice now? Sooner or later it'll need renovating again. No, mind DIY probably sooner. But the point is, that's just a temporary shell for us to use for the time being. One day, it will just crumble and fall down. Hopefully, it will see the year out. But one day, it will just be, be gone, and somebody will bulldoze it and build something else instead. But every person I come across, every individual I talk to, they're an eternal being. They have value and dignity and identity in the sight of God. I can do something in their life that will last for eternity. Everybody everybody makes an impact. It's just a question of what you want the impact of your life to be. The great news, I'll finish with this, the great news about living in a society that values consumerism, entitlement and convenience is that a people who are living for God's family, who are living lives of sacrifice and want to leave a legacy, will stand out all the more. We'll be like a city set on a hill. Will you this morning lay down your right to be entertained, to lead a convenient life, and instead exchange it for something that matters, to be a mother, a father, a brother, a sister to the people that God draws across your path?